This book is about how to train anyone, human or animal, young or old, oneself or others, to do anything that can and should be done. How to get the cat off the kitchen table or your grandmother to stop nagging you. How to affect behaviors in your pets, your kids, your boss, your friends. How to improve your tennis stroke, your golf game, your math skills, your memory. All by using the principles of training with reinforcement. And a very happy Mother's Day to everyone. To honor this day, I thought long and hard about what book would encapsulate mothers the best. And I couldn't help but think of who I considered to be the mother of positive reinforcement training, Karen Pryor. Now, I have always loved and admired Karen Pryor. Now, my very first do notable was on her memoir, Lads Before the Wind, about her time as head trainer at Sea Life Park in Hawaii back in the 1960s. And you can check it out with the link in the description. Now, of course, she would be a fantastic person to feature for Mother's Day. Now, that choice became even more obvious when I looked online and discovered that Karen Pryor's birthday is May 14th. Now, Karen has several books on training, including On Behavior and a piece in the book, Better Together. But there's no book that exemplifies Karen's work in the field of positive reinforcement animal training than Don't Shoot the Dog. It's sometimes referred to as the Animal Trainer's Bible. Now, I first read this book when I entered the zoo field as an animal care husbandry assistant working with marine mammals. Then I read it a few years later, highlighting different parts. When I made the switch to land animals back in 2009, I read it again and found even more insightful wisdom that helped me when working with elephants. And it has been more than 10 years since I last read Don't Shoot the Dog, but I recently attended a Karen Pryor training course with Ken Ramirez. You can listen to my Zoo Notable interview with Ken from last July. And I was reminded about the great, timeless wisdom Karen shares with us in her pivotal book. So I dusted off my copy and taped the cover with sl that was slowly tearing off and dove in once more. And folks, it's still amazing how new things just keep popping out at me. Now, I do admit I try to keep my Zoo Notables under 30 minutes, but this book made it impossible to cut down with all the amazing insights and the applications to our own personal lives and how empowering and motivating using positive reinforcement can truly be. I'm sure you'll be glad that I kept as much as I could into this episode. So if you're ready, let's celebrate the mother of positive reinforcement training on her 91st birthday by diving into Don't Shoot the Dog. Let's kick things off with big idea number one, how to train yourself. Quote, positive reinforcement can even work on yourself. At a Shakespeare study group I once belonged to, I met a Wall Street lawyer in his 40s who was an avid squash player. The man had overheard me chatting about training, and on his way out the door afterward, he remarked that he thought he would try positive reinforcement on his own squash game. Instead of cursing his errors, as was his habit, he would try praising his good shots. Two weeks later, I ran into him again. How's the squash game, I asked. A look of wonder and joy crossed his face. 
At first, I felt like a damned fool, he told me, saying, way to go, Pete, attaboy, for every good shot. Hell, when I was practicing alone, I even patted myself on the back. And then my game started getting better. I'm four rungs higher on the club ladder than I've ever been. I'm whipping people I could hardly take a point from before. And I'm having more fun. Since I'm not yelling at myself all the time, I don't finish a game feeling angry and disappointed. If I make a bad shot, never mind. Good ones will come along. And I find I really enjoy it when the other guy makes a mistake, gets mad, throws his racket. I know it won't help his game, and I just smile. What a fiendish opponent. And just from switching to positive reinforcement. Now again, I call Don't Shoot the Dog the Animal Trainer's Bible. And it's easy to assume that this book is all about training animals. Dogs, horses, dolphins, and maybe other exotics. But even back in the 1980s, when the first edition of the book was published, Karen understood the social and personal applications of positive reinforcement training. And it sort of cracks me up when I read books like Atomic Habits by James Clear, Flourish by Martin Seligman, who's called the father of positive psychology, and even the work of B.J. Fogg and his tiny habits. These ideas didn't become popular until the late 1990s, but they are simply the same ideals that Karen talks about, the principles that she and other marine animal trainers established as far back as the 1960s. It's just that they developed these practices with animals, and it took society a while to figure out that perhaps these principles would work on human animals, too. Now, I'll admit it's a, a little bit tougher to positively train ourselves, but Karen tells us another more pertinent reason why we typically don't use positive reinforcement with ourselves. She says, this is something we often neglect to do, partly because it doesn't occur to us and partly because we tend to demand a lot more of ourselves than we would of others. And this is so true. It's made tougher when ways we normally reinforce animals won't work for us. It's not a great idea to use food as your primary reinforcer, as most often our training goals deal with healthy habits, self-care, and fitness. Eating treats often negates the hard work and efforts that we've achieved. So if we aren't encouraged to use food as a reward, what on earth should we use? Well, that's completely up to you. Again, my suggestion is anything from music to games, reading, and even some rejuvenating self-care. They all work great. But Karen opened my eyes with her great insight. She says, the single most useful device in self-reinforcement I found was record-keeping. I need to record performance in such a way that improvement could be seen at a glance. I use graphs. Thus, my guilt over a lapse could be assaged by looking at the graphs and seeing that even so, I was doing much better now than I had been six months previously. Perfection might still be a long way off, but the curve or sloping line of the graph was in the right direction. And this visible proof of improvement, while itself a weak and slow operating reinforcer, did provide enough motivation to keep me going most of the time. Yes, 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 yes. Record your progress. There are few things more satisfying than giving yourself a check mark, a gold star, or as Karen demonstrates, a point on a graph. Now, I like to practice this with clients who are just adamant about losing weight. I tell them that if they do weigh themselves, it's important to write it down, to graph it out. And if when 
the scale number goes up, I want them to graph that too. But then not look at that one instance, but look at the entire trend. And when we see that the trend is going the general direction we want, that is incredibly motivating. And that's the power of positive reinforcement and using animal training methods on yourself. And so as we move forward with today's Zoo Notable, I'd like you to think about a goal that you have. It can be fitness or wellness related or maybe even career productivity related. But see how you can apply these principles to yourself and how you feel positive reinforcement will work for you. Big idea number two is being positive works. Quote, there are eight methods of getting rid of a behavior, only eight. It doesn't matter if it's a long-term behavior such as a messy roommate or a short-term problem such as kids making too much noise in the car. Anything you do about it is going to be a variation of one of these eight methods. One, shoot the animal. This definitely works. You'll never have to deal with that particular behavior in that particular subject ever again. Two, punishment. This is everyone's favorite in spite the fact that it almost never really works. Three, negative reinforcement. Removing something unpleasant when a desired behavior occurs. Four, extinction. Letting the behavior just go away by itself. Five, train an incompatible behavior. Six, put the behavior on cue, then never give the cue. Seven, shape the absence of the behavior. Reinforce anything and everything that is not the undesired behavior. And eight, change the motivation. This is the most kindly method of all. Now, there are only 180 pages in Don't Shoot the Dog, but a quarter of the book is dedicated to learning all the ways we can eliminate unwanted behavior. And why so much focus on one aspect of training? Well, sometimes the best way to improve our lives and our animals' lives isn't by adding healthy habits, but by removing the unhealthy behaviors. And these methods are designed to show why positive reinforcement works best and why punishment is better as an absolute last resort. And the first four listed, shooting the animal, punishment, negative reinforcement, and extinction, are focused on what could be considered aversives. However, the fourth one, extinction, teeters on the edge of positive reinforcement training. By not applying any undesired consequences for the unwanted behavior, but no positive consequences either. That's the key to extinction. It's basically not responding to the behavior until it just fades away. And it's those last four that help us out the most and really turn up the juice for changing behavior. In fact, method five and number seven are concepts I recognize as differential reinforcement of incompatible or alternative behaviors. Now, if your eyes just glazed over, don't worry, I got you. I often call these methods HABs or habits, healthy alternative behaviors in training. And basically, you reinforce the behavior that is physically impossible to do simultaneously as the unwanted behavior. And this is how I quit smoking in 2015 for good. I trained myself to cook or bake any time I had a craving for a cigarette. Soon, instead of craving cigarettes, I got this inexplicable urge to make delicious foods. My cravings for cigarettes went away, and I replaced my smoking habit with a healthy alternative behavior. But you can also try maybe method seven, which is reinforcing any behavior except 
the unwanted. I sometimes refer to this as flooding, filling up my time with distractions away from what I don't want to do. I can do anything and everything except for quote unquote watching TV or scrolling through social media. I can take a shower, I can drink tea, I can read, I can go to bed early, whatever it takes to keep me off of that behavior that I don't want to do. But one of my favorite ideas for dealing with unwanted behavior is to simply put it on cue. That is, train that behavior and then ask for it on rare and rare occasions. I told a friend this might work with her kids who had a tendency to throw temper tantrums when they were traveling, even to fun places or activities. So one day my friend told her kids that they had six minutes to yell and scream and throw themselves on the floor and cry. Her kids thought their mom had lost her mind. But they did it, and after three minutes, they got it all out of their system. PJ, she told me later, it was a miracle. No, it's not a miracle. It's just positive reinforcement training. And that final method is called changing the motivation. And here's how Karen says it works. If a dog barks all night, it may indicate that the barking dog is lonely, frightened, or bored. So we can give exercise and attention by day so that the dog is tired and sleepy at night. Or we can even provide another dog to sleep with them at night for company. Or we can bring the dog inside. And if your kids are noisy in the car, that escalation of noise and conflict is often due to hunger and fatigue. So provide juice or fruit and snacks, and maybe even some pillows for comfortable lounging on home from school trips. On long journeys, all of the above plus 10 minutes per hour of stopping and running around outdoors is good for the kids and it's good for the adults too. All right, so those are several really great ideas. So let's go back to your main goal that we discussed in big idea number one. Can you improve or work towards your goal by removing something or by changing your behavior? And which of those methods resonates the most with you? Perhaps you can try that out, maybe even today, and get a jump start on improving your life and the world around you. Big idea number three is punishment does not work. Quote, this is humanity's favorite method. When a behavior goes wrong, we think first of punishment. Scold the child, spank the dog, dock the paycheck, give the company a fine, invade a country. But punishment is a clumsy way of modifying behavior. In fact, much of the time, punishment doesn't work at all. One reason punishment doesn't usually work is that it does not coincide with the undesirable behavior. We punish often long after the behavior occurred, sending people to prison being a prime example, thus creating an event that may have no effect on future behavior and which in fact is merely retribution. Nevertheless, we think of such punishment as education, and people easily refer it to that way. I taught him a lesson. However, the subject very often never connects the punishment to their previous deeds. Now, the problem I have with punishment is manyfold, but Karen points out two main issues, and I 100% agree with her. It often comes too late after the behavior to be effective, and it doesn't teach the subject what behavior you do want instead. 
Now, there's eight methods for changing behavior and eliminating behavior we don't want. The first two are the harshest and most severe. Punishment and what Karen calls shooting the animal. Now, this doesn't actually mean killing the animal or person necessarily. Obviously, there are laws against that. But it does refer to eliminating the possibility of the subject being able to do that behavior. So here's what Karen says about method one. The vital thing to understand about method one is that it teaches the subject nothing. Preventing the subject from exhibiting the behavior by restraint, confinement, divorce, electrocution does not teach the subject much about the behavior. And it seems reasonable that a man sent to prison for theft would think twice before he steals again. But we know that very often that is far from the case. All we can be sure of is that he cannot rip off your TV while he is locked up. There are some other examples of method one that include firing employees who act up or don't do the work and even kicking your roommate out for undesired habits. Whether that's justified or not, this is method one. Odysseus used method one by tying himself to the mast while passing the sirens in the Greek mythology story of the Odyssey. And his crew used method eight, changing the environment and motivation by putting wax in their ears so they were not tempted at all. Now, method two is punishment, and it, it isn't any better than method one. It still teaches the subject nothing about what is appropriate behavior. Quote, while prompt punishment may stop an ongoing behavior, it does not cause any particular improvement to occur. Punishment does not teach a child how to achieve a better report card. The most the punisher can hope for is that the child's motivation will change. Now, here is the real danger about using punishment, especially with yourself. If you are a person who punishes yourself, and most of us are, having been taught to do so early in childhood, you should recognize that it is a method to solution and not necessarily something you deserve. You might have good reasons to want to get rid of that behavior that makes you feel guilty, but you might then have better luck with some other method than self-punishment. Some examples of punishment include when a spouse habitually comes home in a bad mood and we start a fight or we sulk, scold, or cry. And we all know how well sulking Scolding and starting fights works in establishing a trusting relationship, right? So again, let's go back to our goal behavior. Are you using punishment to try and train yourself? Now, how well is that working? Are you enjoying it? The science tells us that punishment isn't as effective as positive reinforcement in teaching us new behaviors. So let's turn that around and start focusing on the positive. Big idea number four, a negative reinforcement, better but not best. Quote, negative reinforcers are aversives that can be halted or avoided by changing behavior. As soon as the new behavior starts, the aversive stimulus stops and thus the new behavior is strengthened. Suppose that while in my aunt's living room, I happen to put my feet up on the coffee table as I would at home. My aunt raises a disapproving eyebrow. I put my feet on the floor again. Her face relaxes. I feel relieved. The raised eyebrow was an aversive stimulus acting as a negative reinforcer. Because I was able to halt the aversive stimulus, the new behavior, keeping my feet on the floor, 
is more likely to occur again, at least at my aunt's house, but possibly in other houses too. Now, it's important to distinguish negative reinforcement from punishment. The two are not the same thing. Reinforcement, whether it's negative, meaning removing something, or positive, giving something to the subject, always encourages behavior, increasing the likelihood of it occurring in the future. Punishment is a consequence of behavior that stops a behavior and sometimes decreases the likelihood of it occurring in the future. So negative reinforcement does teach new behavior. So why isn't it lumped with positive reinforcement? Well, here's what Karen Pryor says. While negative reinforcement is a useful process, it's important to remember that each instance of negative reinforcement also contains a punisher. And folks, there's the rub. If the behavior isn't achieved, the learner receives the punishment. Sometimes the aversive is really pretty minor. I mean, we receive a negative reinforcer whenever we forget to put our seatbelt on. That annoying dinging sound goes away as soon as we latch our seatbelt, and it improves the odds that we will put on the seatbelt the next time we get in the car. But here's another reason, as Karen Pryor shares in the book. Baby animals tend to learn more easily through positive reinforcement and to be bewildered and frightened by punishment and negative reinforcers. Conventional dog trainers usually do not advise formal obedience training until a dog is six months of age. The reason they give is that puppy is too young to learn, but the real problem is that formal training is generally too aversive and the puppy is too young to learn that particular way. With praise and petting and food, you can teach a puppy almost anything, starting even before weaning. But put a choke chain on the puppy and try to force them to heal, sit, or stay, and you will frighten the animal before you can teach it much. Now again, in my opinion, the biggest problem is that while punishment doesn't teach anything, negative reinforcement teaches mediocrity. And when we have big dreams and big goals, do we want to settle for meh or bare minimum? Or do we want to reach the stars? Now, if you're only working to avoid a punishment such as a fine or fee or a guilt trip or restriction from an activity you really like, such as if I don't work out every day this week, then I don't get to see the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie, well, then we aren't going to exceed expectations. We're going to settle for, quote unquote, good enough. The positive reinforcement teaches us that the better we do, the better we feel. And that's the difference between meeting our goals and knocking them out of the park, exceeding our expectations and everyone else's. And finally, we have big idea number five, positive reinforcement trains the brain. Quote, my friend Lee, a sixth grade math teacher in one of the rough parts of New York City, always begins the school year by training his pupils to get rid of their chewing gum when he tells them to. No coercion, just, okay, everyone, the first thing we're going to do is take our chewing gums out of our mouths. Awesome! He also instructs them at the end of class to resume chewing gum, using class dismissed as the reinforcer. And this might seem frivolous and even silly, though it does spare Lee the sight of masticating jaws, which he hates. But he finds that this first exercise awakens his class to the possibility of earning reinforcement by responding to his requests. His kids think he is weird about gum, 
but they also learn he means what he says and that it pays off to do what he wants. So they become generally responsive and attentive. Well, Karen shares several of these real life stories of people using positive reinforcement in their daily lives to change behavior in themselves or in others. But this particular story is one of my favorites. It's the line right here that gets me. They learn that he means what he says. And this, folks, is the mother of all reasons why positive reinforcement is so much more powerful and effective than punishment or negative reinforcement. Because we learn that we can follow through and that it pays to do what we want. It pays to exert just a little tiny bit of willpower to do what we say we're going to do. And this process of doing what we say we're going to do and reinforcing those actions is key to forming this new identity that embodies the virtues that we value. And that's the ultimate of what we're going after here. As James Clear discusses in his book, Atomic Habits, when we shift to performing these healthy habits, we become the type of person who does what they say they're going to do. It's no longer, I try to eat healthy, it's I eat healthy. And that action is rewarded by positive reinforcement. Now, ultimately, that identity becomes part of the reinforcement and intrinsic good feeling. I eat healthy because it feels good to do so and because that's just who I am. You couldn't pay us to eat foods that don't fuel us with healthy energy. Now, that's how positive reinforcement training works on our brain to teach us how to form new identity and to repeat the actions that support that ideal. So, how will your new identity change your life? Are you working towards greatness one step at a time, having fun and learning new things? Well, let's practice emulating the great mother of positive reinforcement training today, tomorrow, and forever, and reach for the stars and change the world. Thank you so much for joining me in this special Zoo Notable, Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. If you're interested in getting a copy, I actually recommend checking out Karen Pryor Clicker Training website. The link is in the description. You can also sign up for some amazing training courses, workshops, and seminars to improve your training skills, not just for the animals, but to improve your life, your community, and the world around you. I'm going to close us out today with some additional quotes. These are all from Karen Pryor in Don't Shoot the Dog. Karen says, A reinforcer is anything that, occurring in conjunction with an act, tends to increase the probability that the act will occur again. Memorize that statement. It is the secret of good training. She says, no matter what the behavior, there are as many ways to shape it as there are trainers to think them up. Again, that's another way of saying there is no the way. <laughs> Any good trainer seeing that a child is bored by or afraid of one method will switch to another. The same shaping methods don't work equally well on every individual's. Karen says the laws of learning like the laws of physics apply to all of us, but visualizing the applications is not always easy. New trainers often ask with an embarrassing giggle, does this work with children or spouses? Of course it could, 
but you have to learn how to do it. For example, shutting up about, shutting up about what you don't like in order to wait for and reinforce behavior you do like is counterintuitive and takes some practice. Karen tells us real elegant stimulus control established through use of shaping and reinforcers may produce something we interpret as discipline in the subject. The person who really has to become disciplined, however, is the trainer. She tells us training is not about animals and people. It's about better ways of teaching and learning. And finally, Karen tells us the laws of reinforcement are powerful tools, but the rule book is far from versatile than some people have supposed. In fact, far more versatile than some people would like it to be. To be using reinforcement is to be involved in the process of continual change or continual give and take of continual growth. One becomes aware of the dualistic two nature, two-way nature of this communion. One becomes aware of others and inevitably more aware of oneself. It could be said that training is a process that requires one to be both inside and outside of one's own skin at the same time. Who is the trainer and who is the trainee? Both change and both learn.